Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 4. We'll begin with verse 14. This is the account when Jesus returns to his hometown. Luke 4.14 And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, if you would have stopped there, it would have seemed like quite a successful day. But he didn't stop there. He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the skies were shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came upon the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian, these foreigners, God's blessing these foreigners. Well, they didn't like this. They didn't like that idea. I mean, here Jesus was in his hometown, and they're expecting some great thing because of that. And Jesus says that's not the way it's going to be. Consequently, verse 28 And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. 
Now, if you would turn over to Mark chapter 6. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many of the listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and of Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do, and he could do no miracles there, except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and, and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray for your instruction and help here as we look at these verses. Consider what we should learn from this account of Jesus returning to his hometown. Let's ask for your Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these two accounts, we have Jesus with his disciples returning to his hometown, the place he grew up, Nazareth. I think that the account in Luke was probably his first return, and this account here in Mark records a subsequent return sometime later. Now, some commentators think these accounts refer to the same event, and that may well be. Uh, but it doesn't make uh, any difference as far as what I want to try to draw from these accounts this morning. The main thing I want us to consider is the danger of unspiritual familiarity with the things of God. The danger of unspiritual familiarity with the things of God, especially with Christ himself. Now, I say unspiritual familiarity because there's a proper familiarity with the truth that the Holy Spirit gives, a spiritual f familiarity, which causes us to love the truth, to love Christ, to love spiritual things, to want to grow, to grow in appreciation and application of God's Word. That's a good thing, that kind of familiarity. But when Jesus was talking about a prophet being without honor in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, he was speaking about a familiarity that was not a good thing. It was a bad thing. Something that would destroy faith something that we must guard against. This kind of familiarity happens when we, become, when we become so accustomed to a person, place, or thing that we do not regard them as highly as we should. 
As it's sometimes said, familiarity breeds contempt. We're going to look at that concept this morning. You see, these people thought that they knew Jesus. They thought they knew him because they knew something about him as he was growing up. Nazareth was not a big city. It was a small place. They would have known this little little guy running around town and later working in the carpenter shop. They knew his former occupation. They knew he was a carpenter, a lowly carpenter. They knew his family, a poor family, in which he actually was of questionable parentage. Those things get around small towns. Note how they put it here in, in, uh, in Mark. They call him the son of Mary. If they had heard anything about the virgin birth, they certainly didn't believe it. They saw him as the son of Mary, not the son of God. And then there were his brothers and sisters, none of which believed on him at this time. Consequently, when the people of Nazareth considered what Jesus said and what they had heard about him, were told they took offense at him. Literally, they stumbled. They were made to stumble. They stumbled over Christ. They thought they knew him, but they did not. He was a prophet without honor among his own people. Now, if he'd just come back for a friendly visit, everything would have been fine. But the idea that this hometown boy was trying to come back and teach with authority was something that they stumbled at. They thought they knew him. They thought they were familiar with him because of all the information they had gleaned uh, as he was growing up. They thought they knew enough to form a judgment about him. They'd known him for 30 years, virtually 30 years. In actuality, their familiarity with him kept them from really knowing him and believing in him. So what they had was an unspiritual familiarity with him that caused them to be distracted by side issues and caused them to stumble over the really important things. They knew him on the surface. They knew him, as Paul would say, after the flesh, according to the flesh. They didn't have a spiritual understanding of Christ, and they stumbled over what he was saying. They probably thought along the following lines. Why, I remember him working in the carpenter shop with Joseph. Now he says God is his father. I know his brothers and sisters. Now he says things like, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, he may have a few followers with him here, but none of our leaders, none of the leaders of the people, believe in him. He says that the scriptures are fulfilled in him. Who is he to say things like that? Who is he to say that none can come to the Father but by him? Who is he to say he's the light of the world? We saw him running around the carpenter shop. Who is he to say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Who is he to tell us 
that if we don't believe in him, we'll perish. You know, he has no academic training. We know that. He has no degrees. He lives in poverty, just like the rest of his family. I'm not going to believe someone like that unless they do some miracles, some amazing things for me. Actually, the fact that he was uneducated was just the, that very fact was a miracle. The fact that he was uneducated and of a humble background and yet spoke the way he did. It should have spoken to them of his divine origin. As one commentator said, the facts on which the Nazarenes grounded their unbelief are really irrefutable proof of Christ's divinity. The character and work of Christ compared with the circumstances of his origin and environment are an insoluble riddle except on one supposition, that he was the word and power of God. But they prejudged him according to what they thought they knew from the past, and no amount of evidence would change their obstinate unbelief. Not miracles, not wisdom, not even a sinless life. Now think about this. These people of Nazareth had observed the most kind, loving, truthful, just, and holy person that ever walked the face of the earth. They'd watched him grow up for almost 30 years, and still they did not believe in him. So let's draw a few conclusions or consider at least some considerations from that. First, though we should show ourselves friendly and kind to those, who seek, those we seek to win to Christ, the idea that being loving will keep a person from stumbling over Christ is not valid. Christ loved these people perfectly, and they still were offended at him. Also, also the idea that if people would just see signs and wonders, they'd believe. That's false. We know that from the life of Christ over and over again. Also, the idea that if they were just sufficiently intellectually impressed, they'd trust in Christ just because of the wisdom of the message. Well, they admitted there was wisdom here, but they still didn't trust him. They still didn't put their life in his hands. They acknowledged his wisdom and his miraculous powers, but still they stumbled over him. It takes a supernatural work in the heart of a person for that person to submit to Christ and not stumble over him. Most importantly, this should warn all of us of something very important, and that is we can become familiar with many things about Christ and still not know him. Now let me just say a word to the children here because that's very important for you to realize. You can become familiar with the Bible and even the gospel and yet still not be a Christian. Being familiar with the gospel is not the same as putting your faith in Christ.
the knowledge of the scriptures, the knowledge of the gospel has to be united with faith in your heart for you to be a Christian. It's not enough just to know those things. And then for all of us, especially us that have been Christians for a while, there is the sad reality that sometimes familiarity breeds indifference or coldness or apathy. Things that were once precious to us become common and are not held in high esteem. This can happen in a lot of different areas of our lives. For instance, just in the area of God's common grace, we can become so familiar with the freedoms that we have here in this country that we forget that these freedoms cost the lives of many people who died to win them. Or in the area of our families, it seems sometimes we are the least kind to those we are around the most. We begin to take our husband or our wife or our children for granted. What once seemed precious is now common. We have to be careful about this attitude creeping in as time goes by in just about any type of relationship. We are apt to despise mercies that we've grown accustomed to. Just like the Hebrews in the wilderness became accustomed to the provision of miraculous manna, they even got to the place where they said, we loathe this miserable food. God was miraculously feeding them every day and they got so familiar with this and so accustomed to it, they, they would say something like, we loathe this miserable food. I want us just to consider some of the things that we can get too familiar with. For instance, what about things like having the Word of God in our own language? something that multitudes of Christians through the centuries did not have. Multitudes have never had, did not have the Word of God in their own language. I, I, in, a, in my house, I've probably got four or five different English translations. And people have lost their lives because of just wanting the Bible in their own language. Or what about the fellowship of the saints? People to meet with and worship with and pray pray with. <clears throat> Have we become so familiar with these precious gifts that they don't mean much to us anymore? Or what about the biblical truths that have impacted our lives in the past which seemed so wonderful when we first saw them? Are they now just cold doctrines because we are so familiar with them? 
things like being adopted into the family of God and accepted in the Beloved. Things like having our sins completely atoned for and being made new in Christ. Or the fact that we've been given eternal life in Christ and that He's coming again to take us to Himself, to that place where there's no mourning or crying or tears, to live with Him forever. Have these truths become so familiar that they don't warm our hearts anymore? Have we forgotten what it's like to be lost? That's why it's good to have these testimonies. What about the wrath of God and judgment and hell? Have we heard these things so often and read them so many times that the reality has been dulled? I have to say that the way some Christians speak about hell in such a familiar, light way, I wonder if they really consider and believe what they're saying. Without daily appropriation and application of God's truth by His Spirit, these things do not stir us as they should. And there can come an unconscious unreality in what we say we believe. This surely was part of the problem that John was writing about to the church there at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Where Jesus says to that church, But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. As I was preparing this message, I thought of a couple songs that Keith Green wrote. And uh, one of the lines, there's a song that starts out, Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. But in that song, he says this, O Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burned with holy fear. He obviously was thinking of those verses in, in Revelation. Consider this. Is it possible for Christ to be a prophet without honor in his own spiritual household? I'm talking about the church. Is that possible? Well, the answer is no, at least not for long, because Christ said he will remove that church's lampstand. There may still be a building there with people in it, but the Spirit of God will not be there. He won't be doing miraculous things there because of their unbelief, just like he said there with 
the situation in Nazareth because of their unbelief. So I, I say may God deliver us from any unspiritual familiarity with spiritual things. And I'd like to close by giving what I think are some indicators that we might have an unspiritual familiarity with Jesus, where we've gotten too familiar with him. First thing I would say is, if we stop trying to know him better, thinking we pretty much know him well enough already, or that there's probably not much left for him to say to me. That's a bad sign. Another thing, if we are not in awe of him and amazed at his word, a holy reverential fear is the opposite of unspiritual familiarity. You could just say it this way, if the awe is gone, something's wrong. Third thing I would bring up is if Christ seems quite predictable. You know, we've got him in the box. We've got this little set of things that we understand about Christ, and that's the way he's going to work. If Christ seems quite predictable and even ordinary, and we're not, at least sometimes, surprised and overwhelmed by the way he deals with us. Another one, if we're not challenged and sometimes shocked by what we read in the Word. If we begin to think, as we're reading the Scriptures, we begin to think that His words are not really very far beyond us. I've really got a good handle on all this. That's a bad sign. Not much more for me to know from the Bible. I mean, I've read it through. If that attitude starts coming in, well, I've heard all this and I've read all this before, I think we should be concerned. Here's another one. If we can only refer to some past experience, some past examples of being excited about God in our lives. If our spirituality is mainly in the past tense, with little present fascination with God, that's not good. Here's one that's a little bit different, and uh, it points back to what we read there in 
in Luke chapter 4. When we become so familiar with the scriptures that we can give proof text to people and what they call platitudes without really speaking to people's hearts, their heart needs. You know, there are some things that Jesus said that seem to appeal to most people. In fact, those things that Jesus said at the beginning there, when he stood up and let the people know that he was fulfilling those scriptures there out of Isaiah, most everybody would go along with that, you know, to have somebody that would take care of the downtrodden and and, uh, give sight to the blind and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But there are many other things that Jesus said that only a person born of the Spirit will receive. Other people are going to stumble over. And Jesus knew that. And he knew the needs of the people there in Nazareth. That's why he went on and said those other things. And when the need arises, we must be willing to proclaim the whole counsel of God, even when we know it will produce discord. Now, we're not out to produce discord, but you have to deal with the people. You can't just give them verses. You have to deal with where, they, where the need is. And that's what Jesus was doing with those people. But if we're just so familiar with these phrases and verses that we're just putting them out there without really trying to see what the real need is, we're probably becoming too familiar with the Word of God in, in the unspiritual sense. Those people thought Jesus owed them something special, some special favor because they were from his hometown. And they wanted, God, they wanted him to do some display of power because of that. But Jesus was not going to do that. He was wanting to deal with the needs of their lives. And that's, what we, that's the way we need to deal with people too. Well, the last thing I would say then, if we can take for granted our sinfulness and His gracious forgiveness as if these things are commonplace facts to deal with in a casual way, that's a bad sign. If we can sing Amazing Grace and it just be a song with nice words without having the overwhelming reality of the fact of God's amazing grace in our hearts and lives, there's something wrong. We can never take for granted our sinfulness and God's forgiveness in Christ. Well, um, the danger of unspiritual familiarity. I mentioned Keith Green earlier, and uh, there's another song that is a very short song that he wrote that uh, fits in well with what I'm sharing here this morning. So I asked David if he could play it over the speakers. Let me just read you the words, and then David will put it on. 
My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. So David, if you could put that on. My eyes are dry My faith is old My heart is hard My prayers are cold And I know how I ought to be Alive to you And dead Wash me anew in the wine of your love. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you're a gracious God and one that we can look to you. One that we can look to in whatever state we find ourselves and ask you to deal with us for your glory and our good. Help each one of us not to take your truth and become so familiar with it that we're cold. Just pray for each one of us here. You'd bring us on. Help us to press on to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.